Well, I hope that all of you are in the practice of reading the Bible, but this morning as we begin, uh, I just want to pose a question to you, and that is, how many times have you come to those parts of the Bible which you found to be extraordinarily boring? Now, I know some of you, some of you are cringing, others of you are being honest and say, that's me all the time, I, I find those parts, and, and you, you have to wonder, you know, what in the world, why are those things in there? And to some degree, you under, maybe you understand why they're in there, but you don't find them particularly edifying. I mean, some of you, I think, are on a read the Bible in a year plan. You do that every single year, and, and I commend you for that. That is excellent. But I know some of you just dread Leviticus. I mean, you, you, you're just cringy thinking, oh, I've got to go through that again, or else all those long genealogies in Chronicles and in Kings and, uh, and in Exodus and the, the tribal thing, and you just wonder, why in the world... Is that in there? How do I benefit from those things? And some of us, frankly, are just tempted to skip over them, aren't we? We're just tempted to, to, to say, okay, this is going to be for another two chapters. I'm just going to skip over this and, and pick up where the story picks back up at the good parts. But if as Bible-believing Christians, as so-called evangelicals, we believe that Paul is right when he says that all scriptures are God-breathed. It's, it's as if that he himself has spoken his word directly to us. And so all of the scriptures, even Leviticus and even the so-called boring parts, are profitable to us for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, enabling us to be competent and equipped for every good work. And so what we honestly need to do, and I say we, when we come to those boring parts, is to say, God, give me some wisdom here. Give me some understanding. Perhaps we would pick up a study Bible or, or something else and say, God, help me to understand why you've put this in here and what difference it can make in my life. And this morning, I, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 because what we want to do is go to one of these passages that you may be tempted to go to, to buzz over and actually mine it for its value in our lives. As we go, as we approach, rather, uh, Christmas, we want to look this morning at Jesus' genealogy. We want to learn the answer to the question, who is Jesus after all? What, you know, who, who is he in such a way that, that we, would, we would spend as an entire nation uh, a day, a season, giving over to celebrating his birth? And I know that, that these days that many people don't celebrate the birth of Jesus during the Christmas season. Nevertheless, uh, whatever Christmas has become today, it began as a time set aside to worship uh, the birth of this young man, this infant child who grew up to be a young man who would ultimately die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And so we need to ask ourselves, who is he? And Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know where he came from and what his life is all about. And so this morning as we look to Matthew ch chapter 1, verses 1 through 17... Uh, we want to, through this genealogy, see who Jesus is. And so let's, I would encourage you to follow along. Unless you have this memorized and want to say it along with me, uh, then I would just encourage you to, to follow along uh, in your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. 
and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph and hus the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May God bless the reading of his word. So how does this passage, how does this genealogy tell us something about Jesus' identity? How does it help answer the question, who is Jesus? And this morning I think that we can see three truths about Jesus' identity from this. I think we can see a lot more, but for the sake of convenience, I have summarized them in uh, three basic headings. First, Jesus is the promised son of David, the king of Israel. Jesus is the promised son of David, the king of Israel. This is something, frankly, that Matthew really wants us to understand. In fact, the entire genealogy is, is set around an emphasis on David, the king of Israel. Notice what Matthew says in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now Matthew is not saying there are only 14 generations in each of these divisions, but rather that he is mentioning 14 generations in these divisions. Matthew has purposely left these things out. He's not done this in any way to try and deceive us or to pull something over on us, but he expects his readers, Jewish readers, to know the genealogies of the Old Testament. And so if you were going to look at places like, like Chronicles and Kings, you would see uh, longer genealogies. But... Matthew is specifically highlighting 14 because he is highlighting the Davidic line. And you see, one of the things that the Hebrews uh, did not have were numbers. You know, uh, we're working with Joshua, uh, helping him to understand Roman numerals, uh, as opposed to what we use, Arabic numerals. But, uh, and they're convenient, aren't they, for, for math and for tallying, all kinds of things. But the Hebrews didn't have that. Instead, their letters had numerical value. So David, for example... And again, something you know about Hebrews, they had no vowels. Uh, so your name was reduced to consonants. So David's name was simply D, V, and D. And you would read that and you would know David. Okay? But the numerical value for D is 4. The numerical value for V is 6. And so if you have 4 and 6 and 4, you wind up with 14. The numerical value of David's name is 14. Now let me just stop here and say, first of all, this is not Bible codes. Okay? This is nothing approaching Bible codes, okay? Bible codes are people that have too many computers and too much time on their hands, okay? And, 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 uh, and if you want a further discussions of why that's all nonsense, I'll be glad to take your time with that. But 
uh, part of the reason why we know there's nothing secret going on here is because Matthew was telling us, 14, 14, 14. Do, do, do you get how David is mentioned several times in there? He's highlighting, he's emphasizing, this is all about David. Jesus is David's son. Again, he highlights in these three divisions, uh, all focusing on David. He goes from Abraham to David's father, Jesse, in the first six verses, uh, showing the origins of how David's line came about. In verses 7 through 11, he shows the, the rise and the decline of the Davidic kingship, how David rises to prominence as king, but how there is, we are reminded, again, if we've read the Old Testament, there is this general decline in godliness and in faithfulness among his kings ultimately uh, resulting in what he calls the deportation. We sometimes call the exile. God, uh, Israel had become so sinful that eventually he said, fine, the covenant that you agreed to not only had covenant blessings, it also had covenant cursings. Now I am going to bring about the fulfillment of those covenant cursings because of your unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so God essentially dropped the protective barrier that he had placed around Israel and not just allowed but incited the nations around them to come and to deport the Israelites to pagan lands. And so in this third section, Matthew picks this up and he says, this is the, from the deportation of God's people to Babylon. And in there we see the descent into obscurity of David's house. Although the judgment of God and the, through the judgment of God and the exile, David's line almost appears as if to go extinct. It certainly ceases to rule Israel. The last, the last Davidic king we have is someone who tried to escape the sacking of Jerusalem. We read about him in the Old Testament. And the guy was found not long after his eyes were gouged out and he was carried off to a pagan land. And we know nothing else about him. The Davidic line, Davidic kingship, did not end well in Israel. And it appears now after some 400 years that there's not ever going to be a Davidic king again. And again, if you know your Old Testament, if you know your Bible as Matthew expects his Jewish readers to know, you'll know this is a big problem. This is a very, very big problem. Not just for David, but for God, because God had made a special promise to David. He had entered into a covenant with him. And he had said, there will forever be a king over Israel in your line, David. You see, Saul was the false start for the kingship. And in fact, because of his unfaithfulness, God took the throne away from him and from his line and said, the people had the king they wanted, now I'm going to have the king that I want. The king after, that's why David's called the king after God's own heart. It's because it was the king after God's own choosing. And he says, I am going to give you the kingdom, David, and I'm not ever going to take it away from you like I did from Saul. Forever, if there is a king in Israel, he will be a Davidic king. And so in 2 Samuel 7, when God enters into this covenant with David, he promises, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. Now God is uttering a play there. Offspring can be plural or it can be singular. And he is both saying that your offspring are going to be raised up and they'll be Davidic kings, but there's also going to be one in particular offspring, he says. And I will establish his kingdom forever. And as the Old Testament continued to be given through, through prophets, the idea of the Messiah crystallized in the minds of the people. The promise of God to restore Israel came, and it was going to come through, guess what? This offspring of David, a Davidic king. But again... It's been under 400 years and there's been no Davidic kings. David's line, though known, is fragmented and in obscurity 
and it looks as if the promise has failed. And if it would be only according to human means, then, yeah, in all likelihood, the promise would have failed. But God was the one who made the promise. There was a minister back in the 18th century in the Scottish Highlands named Aeneas Sage. And by all historical accounts, Reverend Sage was a very tall, very powerful, powerfully built, uh, muscular, massive man. And there was a particular Scottish lord that was in uh, his area that he was responsible for. His, um, uh, not parsonage, but the, the, the area of, uh, of, of the, the highlands and, and the towns and stuff that he was responsible for as the minister. And this particular Scottish lord was very ungodly. Cared nothing for church, never came to church. And so it came to great surprise one Sunday morning when uh, after the message, Reverend Sage announced that he would be holding a catechism meeting in this Scottish lord's house. Everybody said, really? That's a, that's a change. And so at the appropriate time, Reverend Sage came a few minutes early and he arrived and he knocked on the Highlander Lord's door. And he opened it up and he basically said, what do you want? And Sage said this, I have come to discharge my duty to God, to your conscience, and to my own. Well, the Scottish Lord was also supposedly a man of great girth and power. And he did not flinch, but looked Sage directly in the eye and said, I care nothing for any of the three. Out of my house or I will turn you out. To which Sage simply stood his ground and said, if you can. <laughs> and what followed was a sort of preparatory meeting before the congregation came between Sage and the Lord. And when the whole thing was over, the Scottish Lord was found lying on the floor with a rope around his hands and feet. And when people began to show up, the Reverend Sage said that the Scottish Lord was, quote, now bound over to keep the peace. And he encouraged everyone to come in and proceeded to teach them the Shorter Catechism. Now that's a pastor I like. That's a pastor I like. And the reason why I bring that up is because in some ways that story of, a, of Aeneas Sage is a bit like God who makes his promises to his people. Reverend Sage showed up and said, I am going to have a catechism teaching in your house and there's nothing you're going to do to stop me. And likewise, when God makes the promise to David, he says, I am going to raise up your house as kings over Israel and there is nothing anyone can do to stop it. The Lord's covenant with David is utterly unstoppable. The Lord overcame death, sin, and time in order to keep his promises to David. Despite the foolish failures and blatant wickedness that marked many of the Davidic kings, and even despite Israel's exile and subjugation of foreign powers, God kept his promise by sending Jesus as the long-awaited king of David, the Messiah, the Christ, who would, be pre who would bring peace and freedom to God's people. You might remember in Acts 13, Paul was preaching and he said, God raised up David to be Israel's king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, Paul says, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so as we stand back and behold what has taken place over these over these centuries, according to God's plan and purposes, we should stand back and be amazed. At the end of the day, nothing, every, every imaginable human rebellion against God could not thwart God's plan to keep his promise. 
At the end of the day, what we see is Jesus coming and being everything that the people were looking for and more. He came in fulfillment to God's promise in amazing and unexpected ways that we'll look at in just a few minutes. But here I simply want to pause. And I want to make the point again, a point that I made several times in Acts. But frankly, it is so imperative as Christians you get this simple point. It's this. God is always faithful to his promises. And it's, it's not just that he will keep his promises, but he's all-powerful. You, you can't stop him from keeping his promises. You say, okay, okay, I get that, but, but what's the big deal? The big deal is this. Your salvation depends on it. If, if any other promise of God can be called into question, if he can ever be found unfaithful to keep a promise, then the promise he has made to you to save you can be called in question. There's no guarantee of it. But more than that, if you do not resolve this issue in your heart now, then when the incredibly difficult times come, when the trying times come, your faith may begin to crumble. You may doubt that God is going to keep His promises that He's made for you. That He is going to make the kind of promises that would serve as the foundation of your life, as the rock upon which you build yourself. But if you have come to believe and to build your life on the fact that God is faithful to His promises... Then even though the circumstances may be incredibly painful, you may be able to say with humble confidence, God, this hurts. This situation hurts, and I cannot see how anything good is going to come out of it. But you have promised that you will love your children. You have promised that you will never leave your children. And you have promised that from all imaginable evil, from all circumstances, you will bring about good for your children. Therefore, God, even though I cannot see with any source of clarity, I still take comfort that you are with me, that your rod and your staff will comfort me. You will be able to continue to walk by faith, depending on God's grace, not wondering if he's going to help out or not, but confidently knowing that God will keep his promises. Because after years and years and years of sin and destruction and apparent failure, God still kept his promise to send Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. The second truth that we see about who Jesus is from this passage is that he is the promise of Abraham, the father of many. Jesus is the promise of Abraham, the father of many. Matthew not only says that Jesus is David's descendant, but the descendant of Abraham as well. Again, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this is kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? I mean, if you know anything about the Bible, where did the Jewish people come from? Abraham, father Abraham, had many sons, right? And many sons had Father Abraham, right? Well, yeah, we don't need to sing it. Thanks, though. I appreciate that. If you're part of the Jewish nation, then Abraham is your ancestor. You have his genes. But, but Matthew was getting at more than just the physical ancestry here. After all, he could have gone all the way back to Adam, couldn't he? Which is, in fact, what Luke does. But he didn't do that. Remember, Matthew is writing to a specific Jewish audience. And he is writing to address things that they specifically are concerned about. He zeroes in on the things they're concerned with. And something that the Jewish people were very concerned with was their identity as Abraham's children. You think about what we just talked about in terms of the exile. You've got centuries of pagan living and intermarrying with pagan peoples. You've got the whole Samaritan ethnic group. And you've got very pious Israelites wanting to say, we clearly are the children of Abraham. There is no, there is no way you can, you, can, uh, you can dispute it. We are descendants of Abraham. 
But something they forgot and something that Matthew wants to remind them of is that Abraham was not always a Jew. Abraham was not always part of the covenant, the father of the covenant. And in fact, before that, Abraham himself was a pagan, a Gentile like so many others. He didn't know God or worship him. But God called him out of the nations to be the father of his covenant people, Israel. Though advanced in years and childless, childless, God promised to provide him a child from his own flesh and blood. And again, if you know the story, you know Abraham tried everything in the world to make the promise come about. And God kept saying, no, no, no. And he kept cleaning up Abraham's sinful messes. And he said, Abraham, you're not, you're not listening, friend. I will make the promise come about, not you. And in fact, once he does make the promise come about, there's this incredible act of faith on Abraham's part where God seemingly asked him to, to kill the son of promise and to end the blessing that was to come. And yet Hebrews tells us that Abraham so believed God that though he had never heard of it or seen it before, he believed that somehow even if he killed Isaac, God would raise him up again. Though weak in faith and prone to forget God's covenant, God maintained his covenant promises forever. He preserved it. And though he set apart Abraham from the nations, he promised to give Abraham back to the nations. When he makes the covenant with him in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later in Genesis 22, God says the same thing, but it's more specific. He tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And in case Matthew's Jewish readers have forgotten all of this, he dropped some names in the genealogy that they would have been incredibly hard to ignore. Perhaps you caught them as you were reading. In verse 5, he mentions Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab was? As the, the spies go into the land of Canaan, she is there and she has heard about what, what's happening. And she says, look, I know your God's going to give you the victory. So basically, I want to convert. And he, she hides them and helps them escape. And yet, she does all of that as a Canaanite Gentile. Then in verse 5, there's Ruth. Ruth also was a Gentile from Moab. Not only made her a, a Gentile, but part of a people group that was in bitter opposition to the people of Israel. In fact, the Moabite people were under a curse from God. And in Matthew 5, excuse me, verse 6, you've got Bathsheba. Actually, she's not named. She's just called the wife of Uriah. But if you remember in 2 Samuel, Uriah was a Gentile. He was a Hittite. And there's good reason to believe Bathsheba herself was a Hittite. But even if she wasn't, by virtue of marrying her one, she would have been considered a Gentile among the people of God. So what's Matthew doing? He's showing us even in the genealogy of the, of the Messiah, the most Jewish man you could get, there were Gentiles. God has already been blessing the nations through Abraham's offspring. And Matthew needs his readers to understand this because at the pinnacle of the book, when the very end, when Jesus has died for the sins of his people and he's raised back to, to, the, to, the, to life again as Lord over all things, he doesn't say, go to the Jewish people and proclaim my Messiahship. He says, make disciples of all nations. All nations. The plan is for all the nations of the world to come and worship God through the Messiah. My very first international mission trip was to Peru. And uh, we went to this little city of Cusco. It was, uh, uh, it was still a city. But then after we were there, we, got, we loaded up everything into two trucks. And uh, the 
luggage went all in the back of one, and um, they said, you know, thieving was a, a big problem there, and so I got to guard the luggage by riding on top of it all the way. And so have you ever rode up a mountain on top of, in the back of a truck on top of luggage? It's not real fun. Uh, but uh, anyway, it, w- it was an experience, and I got to see the scenery. It was, it was beautiful. But at night, this little city of Urubamba, where we wound it up, where we wound up, there was no lights at night. The, the, the electricity all shut down. And so unless you had a generator, that there was nothing. And so late at night, we would go for uh, some team members and I, we'd go out for walks, and we'd take flashlights. And I remember one night in particular, we're walking around, and we're, you know, uh, goofing off a little bit and stuff. And all of a sudden, I just happened to, to look up, and it was just, I literally stopped dead in my tracks. And I was like, turn the lights off for a second. And we, we, we came out from behind these, in between these buildings we were at, and we, we stood out in the open, and it was the clearest, blackest sky I'd ever seen. And accented in front of that, at least to my eyes, was more stars than I could ever possibly imagine seeing in my life. I mean, you, you know, you know there's countless stars up there, but until you go someplace where there's no city lights, there's no smog, uh, and, it, and it's a nice clear night, you don't realize just how many stars are out there. And I just take an astronomy class, and suddenly, hey, I can actually see the constellations. I can actually pick out some planets that are in view. I mean, it was, it was absolutely amazing. And, and probably one of the more spiritual moments of my life, the first thing I thought of was the promise that God had made to Abraham. Because in making this promise to make him a great nation, he said, Abraham, look up at the stars. And if you can count them, then you will know the number of the offspring that you will have. Well, you can't count them. I mean, even scientists with the Hubble telescope can't count all the stars. They can make good guesses. And yeah, Israel was was a large nation, but it wasn't that big. You could count it and keep track of it. And so, so what's going on here? Well, what Abraham could not imagine, what he did not foresee, and frankly, what most of the Jews did not see, was that... Descend, being a descendant of Abraham ultimately was not about your gene pool. It was not ultimately about your ethnic background. It was about exercising the kind of faith that Abraham did. It was about trusting in the promises of God. And so the question is, do you have faith like Abraham has? Have you trusted specifically in the promise of God to save you through Christ? Then Paul says in Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, that is if you have placed your faith in him and have been united to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what Paul says is, look, God wasn't kidding. God wasn't kidding when he said, if you can count the stars, that's the number of descendants Abraham's going to have. It's now all of the Gentiles who would ever place their faith in God. And the promises he's made in Christ, they now, they now are Abraham's descendants. And so just as in Matthew's day, so also this morning, it doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. It doesn't matter if you've been religious or not. All that matters is whether or not you have put your confidence in Christ for salvation. Because he has come not just as the promised son of David, fulfilling the kingship of Israel. Christ has come as the promised son of Abraham. He has come as the one offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Specifically. How does he bless those nations? Well, this is our last point we want to see this morning. Our last truth about Jesus' identity. He comes as the promised Savior, the hope of the world. Jesus is the promised Savior, the hope of the world. Again, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Have you ever thought about the name Jesus? Have you ever thought about why he was named that? I mean, it's not a unique name. Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. There's lots of people in the Old Testament named Joshua. There's lots of people walking around in Jesus' day named Joshua. There's a couple people in this room still named Joshua. It's a popular name. 
So, so what's, the, what's the big deal? Why, why, why would he be named that? Well, it's unique because of what it means. The, the name Joshua, Yeshua, or again, the Greek Jesus means the Lord saves. And if there, was ever, if there was ever a need to sum up Jesus' life, if there was ever a need to sum up what this, this little baby in a manger was all about, if there was ever a need to, to sum up this life of this obscure man who ultimately died and was worshipped by millions, probably billions of people throughout time, it's in that name Jesus, the Lord saves. And in fact, if we were to skip down to verse 21 and the angel appears to Joseph, he says, look, your virgin bride has just conceived a child. But it's not because she's been unfaithful to you. It's because the Lord has done a miracle. And you are going to call him Jesus. Why? For, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was not just chosen on a whim. It wasn't chosen because it was popular. It was directly chosen by God because his name declared the very reason why he was born in the first place. Jesus was born to save sinners. And in case the name itself doesn't give it away again, Matthew orders the genealogy to heighten this fact that there are sinners in the world. Each of the four women mentioned in this genealogy have some gross sin associated with their lives. Tamar seduced her father-in-law Judah into having an incestuous relationship with her in Genesis 38. That's not someone you want to highlight in your genealogy, is it? And in Ruth, there's no evidence that in her life she was a Moabite, a people born out of a similar incestuous relationship. Before Rahab helped the Israelites and began worshiping the Lord, you know how she made her money? She was a prostitute. And poor Bathsheba. She fell victim to David's lustful passions and became not just the object of his adultery, but also the reason for the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. More than that, we just need to look at the entire third set of names. The section Matthew labels from the deportation or after the deportation of Babylon. The deportation was not something to brag about. The deportation was not something you wanted to remember. The entire sin of the nation caused judgment to fall upon them. Surely Matthew is saying, look at the kind of people that stand in Jesus' line. They're the same kind of people he came to save. It's the same kind of people we have in our genealogies. It's the same kind of people that we are this morning. Sinners in need of a Savior. And so, frankly, it is the irony of ironies that there would be no Christmas if there were no sin. That the most ignominious thing of our lives, the fact that we are so wretched that we deserve hell and that God had to send His Son to provide for our salvation is the constant reminder we have at Christmas. Amidst the, the joy and the glory of the Christ child is the, is the realization that baby had to grow up and die because of me. Because of me. Furthermore, Jesus didn't just decide to do this again on a whim. Matthew says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. We could say Jesus the Christ. Christ is, again, the Greek form of the Messianic title, simply meaning the anointed one. To be anointed means to be set apart and empowered by God for a special calling of his choosing. Thus it was God in his great love and mercy that set apart Jesus for the task of saving sinners from his just and righteous wrath. 
This is the very reason why Christmas is so great. It's that God didn't leave us to die in our sins. He didn't leave us to undergo the judgment that we deserve. No, in love, He delivered us by the life, death, and resurrection of His own Son. Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to live a perfect life, then die a horrible, humiliating death to atone for the sins of His people. Christ died on the cross, suffering under God's wrath against our sin. The Bible says when we understand that, we should believe it. We should trust that that is exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. We should confess with our mouths that we are, in fact, sinners in need of a Savior. And that we should turn away from our life of sin and seek with all of God's grace and with all of our might to follow Christ as the Messiah King, as the Lord of our lives. In Acts 16, the apostles say, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is God's gift of salvation. You don't deserve it and you can't earn it. You simply trust in the promises of God to receive it. Many of us this morning have had to go and give references for a job that we've applied to. We've had to provide names of people that know us. And the employers want these things because they want to talk to someone who knows us. They want to know what kind of person we are. They want to know what kind of strengths we have. They want to know what kind of weaknesses we have. Ultimately, they want to know, are we qualified for the job that we've applied for? This morning, Matthew begins his gospel by showing that Jesus is exactly what the world needs in a Savior. He is the one who came in fulfillment of God's own promises to provide a Savior. He has come according to God's plan and providence. And He's not just come from a certain people or a certain group. He has come to save sinners from the entire world, from every group of people. And so this morning, as we sit here, or as I stand here, we fall into two categories. We fall into the group of people who have trusted in Christ as our Messiah, our saving King. And so we rejoice. We, we stand back and, and again we are, we are amazed at what God did to provide our salvation. And we go away confident in His promises and rejoicing in our salvation. But there's some others that may be here that can't do that. They have to stand from the outside and reflect and say, hopefully I wish I had that Savior. I wish I had that confidence in God's promise to forgive me. I wish I had that joy that could come with Christmas. Regardless of whether I had money for gifts, regardless of whether I had gas to drive to see relatives, I knew that my soul was secure because of Jesus, and so Christmas is the most joyous time of the year. And so the question this morning is, if you're in that second group, do you want to be in the first group? If you're in that second group that stands back, looking from afar, as it were, at the Christ child, do you want to go and be like the rest of us who want to go and to bow the knee and worship at his feet? This morning, God says it's not a matter of coming to this church. It's not a matter of joining this church. It's not a matter of giving. It's only a matter of faith, just like Abraham had. You trust in the promise of God. And the promise of God is this. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, I understand my, my righteousness is not going to get me into heaven. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is his death for my life. That's all you need to do is believe. To turn away from your life of sin and it turns toward the love and grace of God that will call you out of darkness into his glorious light. And so this morning, the call is to either keep rejoicing, keep worshiping, keep standing in awe and be renewed in our confidence in God's promises or for the first time, 
for the first time to truly fall at the feet of the Christ child and worship him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. Father, we're so thankful for what you would do for sinners like us. Father, we're so amazed that in the workings of your providence throughout the history of Israel, despite their sin, through their sin, that, Father, you brought about the perfect fulfillment of your promises to provide a Savior for the world. Father, this morning that we ask, Lord, that we would take joy in that as your people.